tonight. If you are ready, I'm ready. Interesting subject tonight. We're going to finish up chapter 1 and start uh, the first part of chapter 2. Really, we're only going to cover, uh, I think, seven verses, but there's a lot, there's a lot in there. Uh, it's a lot to cover and uh, interesting things going on in our nation today that directly apply, especially to chapter 2. So we're going to be praying about that in just a moment as we conclude. We want to pray for our president-elect and the inauguration uh, and for there to be peace in our country. Uh, and actually the scriptures here talk about that whole issue. So we want to talk about that and then we're going to pray. First of all, let's pray for ask and ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that your grace and your mercy is upon us. We ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We ask you for your help, your wisdom, your understanding, your insight. And, Lord, open our hearts that we could hear what you have to say, not what we want or what we think, but, Lord, what do you say? And what does your word say? And, and what does your word speak to us? And we ask you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts and our lives as we hear the engrafted word of truth, the word of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to read. Uh, actually, I'd like to read it in both translation, New King James and the New, and the New Livings. And it's not a lot, so we're going to do that. We're going to read both versions. First, we're going to start with New King James. This is the last three verses of chapter 1. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In chapter 2, just the first four verses is all we're going to cover. Therefore, I, exalt, I exhort first that all supplications, prayer, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, let's look at those same verses, but we're going to look at a different, little different translation. It doesn't change the meaning per se, but a little different perspective. Timothy, my son, here are the instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some have deliberately violated their consciences... And as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people, ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. 
Now, before I really go into all of these verses, I want you to notice the last passage, the last part, verse 4. Who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. And I want to just give you a little insight into the New Testament church. They had a mentality in the New Testament church, and you see this really throughout the epistles. Their mentality was that everything was focused on one thing, that the gospel would be preached, that they would have freedom to preach the gospel, that people would hear the gospel. It was their heart cry. It was their heartbeat. You have to understand the New Testament church was, they had a hold of the truth that would change the world. The apostles had received it from the Lord Jesus. The apostles had now spread out and they were preaching the gospel. Now the churches were beginning to grow and flourish. People were getting saved. And there was really one thing on their heart, that souls would be saved, that people would hear the truth. And it guided everything really they were thinking and doing. And remember the first part that we taught last week on First Timothy, it was to come against the false teachers because they were having, they would have such an impact. But the reason they, he wanted them to stand strong against those false teachers was so that the gospel might be preached and anything that might hinder the gospel being preached, he said, you need to take care of it. And so everything he said here in the end of chapter 2, excuse me, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and actually you'll see this throughout not only Timothy, Thessalonians, uh, Ephesians. It, it's throughout, really, the New Testament. If you look for it, you see it over and over and over again. It is the heart of the New Testament Christian, and it should be the heart of the church today. They weren't interested in politics. They weren't, in, especially in politics of the church. They weren't interested in programs. They weren't, they were interested in people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And whatever could be done or accomplished so that people would be saved, that's what they wanted. That's what they were interested in. And so it governed, it determined, it guided everything they thought about. And so that's something good for us as a church. And we're, I guess we're a New Testament church. We believe in the New Testament. We're a church, so I guess you'd call us a New Testament church, as well as many New Testament churches. But it should be a guiding uh, truth that, in a sense, pulses through our being. And that is, whatever we do, we want to make sure that people hear the message. Because truly, we have a message that the world needs to hear. They're dying for the truth of the message we have. And they're lost and floundering because they don't have the truth. So let's look at some of these verses. Interesting, uh, let's go back to the, uh, those last uh, verses in, first, in the first chapter, if you would back up. Let's look at 18, 19, and 20. It said, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you. Based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier, may they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. And really what he's saying, you know, when someone got, and really the reference is here, is when someone got set into the ministry, elders or leaders lay hands on them. We, we would identify that as ordination. 
here it, it, it's really just talking about Paul saying, remember when we laid hands on you and set you into the ministry, remember the things that we spoke over you. Take those words and gird yourself up for the fight because I get the impression Timothy's a little overwhelmed at these false teachers that had come into the church at Ephesus. He was a little uh, intimidated and, and kind of maybe even thinking about, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And Paul is writing a letter saying, Timothy, come on, man, let's man up. Uh, think about the prophecies that were given to you when we laid hands on you and fight a good fight. But notice part of the fight was that you need to cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. There's nothing like a holy life that will give you power in your testimony, that will be able to pe- preach the gospel. There's nothing better than a pure life and a, and a clean conscience that allow you to do that. And, and then he gives the example. For some have deliberately violated their consciences as a result, their faith, has been shipwrecked, and he is now he's kind of going back to the theme that we talked about last week. He's really concerned about false teachers that have risen up in the church. Now he references two guys, Alexander and Hymenaeus, uh, from the as earliest records we can find. Uh, these were leaders, elders uh, in the church at Ephesus that got off and left field. And what's interesting is they began preaching, you believe in Jesus, but you also have to believe in works. They began to add to their faith in Christ. And they began, and it's not, they didn't deny Jesus. They just said, you have to keep this law and you have to be circumcised and you have to be this, and you have to keep this feast. And they begin to add all these Jewish uh, traditions, and they would say, you have to do these things in order to be saved. Uh, and here's the problem. As soon as you leave the cross, and you begin to add things to the cross of Jesus, you're on a slippery slope. Because who gets to determine what laws and rules you have to add to the cross in order to get saved? Who gets to be the guy that says, well, you've got to follow this and believe in Jesus? It, it, it is real simple. And that's what I love about the gospel. The gospel is simple. It's all Jesus. It is the shed blood of Jesus. We are forgiven by His precious blood, and we are not deserving. It is not our works. It is not our anything. It is... Only the shed blood of Jesus and now our works come as a result of our salvation. And that has to be the the rock-solid faith that we have in Christ. And yet for ages, there, there was a problem here. Hymenaeus and Alexander were one example. And what's interesting is that not only were they shipwrecked, but Paul had to kick them out. So uh, I have a question. I wrote it in your notes here. I've been thinking about it all day. What pulls people away from the true gospel of Jesus and then causes them to shipwreck? What, what is it? I mean, you and I probably all have experienced somebody that 
is a friend or maybe a family member who started great in Christ and yet they fell away. Anybody want to give me their thoughts on what, and I know there's not any one thing, but what are some of the things that can cause us to fall away from our true faith in Christ? What, what draws people away? Yes, Brother Cobb. What's that? Yeah, yeah. False teaching, all right. Somebody said pride back there? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I think the pride issue, it, it, it comes up because they want to be more spiritual looking than anybody else. So they're always going to add to. They always got a new doctrine. I want to tell you, there are no new doctrines. <laughs> there is one doctrine. It is Jesus. It is him shed his blood at the cross, and we are saved and washed by that, and that's it. Uh, and yet, I think you're right. I think it's that pride rises up, and they had this desire to want to look more spiritual, sound more spiritual, look you know, hey, I was able to keep this law. I was able to do this. I did it better. Uh, you know, and so pride is a real issue. Um, I, I, th- I think that's one of the issues that draws people away. Anybody else? Any thoughts? Yes, Penny? Not having balanced grace and truth. Yeah, and that's that's been a problem for ages. That's been a long-time problem in the church. Uh, trying to get the balance between... And here again, this is where, you know, tr- truth becomes laws and rules. And if you have all laws and rules and no grace, then you become what we call legalistic. But... If it's all grace, and oh, I can do anything I want, God's grace covers it. Oh, I can sleep around, it don't matter, God's grace covers it. See, if it's all grace, and and nothing over here, no truth, and, and walking in the truth of God's Word because of grace then there has to be a healthy balance between the two. And, and I think that's one thing I've tried to do, uh, you know, in my years here is, is to make sure there was a good, healthy balance in whatever we're looking at. We want it to be balanced because we've got to live it out and we wanted to live it out long term. What do you, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I let me expand on that just one step further. Okay, an event happens, maybe a loss of a loved one. Mama gets sick. Uh, Daddy 
dies in a car accident, loss of a child, something happens that is a tragedy. So that is, that's where a person takes offense at God. They're offended that God hasn't done what they wanted him to. And here's, here's the truth. God is God, and we have to accept that his ways are best, whether we like it or agree with it or not. It comes with be, being God, simply because his perspective is different. And not every tragedy, in fact, most tragedies, God didn't plan or want those to happen. You know, that accident where a lost one was loved, a loved one was lost, just because it happened doesn't mean God planned that. You know, some guy might have been driving drunk on the other side of the road and caused that. I don't think that was God who caused that. And yet somehow some people have gotten this idea that if God allows it, he, he wanted it to happen. No, God allowed it in the sense that he gave man free will and won't violate that free will. And because of that free will that we have, a lot of bad things happen. So you're right. I think people take offense at God not understanding the sovereignty of God and the free will aspect, and they get they get mad. Now, let me... Uh, the other side of that, I think that is what causes some to pull away. Uh, another one is where we take offense at one another. I mean, I, I would probably venture... Uh, I don't know, can't, can't add a percentage to this, but high percentage of people who leave the church and then eventually leave God and walk away from God got offended because of somebody did something. Mike? I'm telling you what, you ought to just leave the church over that. Bill? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, and 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 a little bit on the side of that, sometimes we have wrong expectations. You know, they come in, they get saved, and they have this expectation, everything's going to be perfect, everything's going to be right, all Christians are going to be nice to me. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to offend me. Uh, you know, Christians never say bad things. You know, you, we have all these expectations and people don't live up to those expectations and i think having a a healthy balance realization that we're all sinners we all fall short we we all mess up uh and and i think yeah i think that's that probably is a, a part of it so already you can tell that there's more than one reason why people pull a fall away yes Okay, so there's a devil, there's a real devil, and he is tempting and enticing, and there's all kinds, you know, we talked about this today in staff meeting, in our pastoral staff meeting, you know, I want to tell you, our kids, our young people, they face so many temptations that I never faced. I I want to tell you, our kids are fighting a battle with all this social media 
and all this Internet stuff and all this proliferation of pornography. I want to tell you, our kids are facing battles that I never even thought about. And the devil is real. And he is making those enticements look so good. And, man, if you have children, if you have any age children, I want to tell you, you've got to have all hands on board, totally focused while you're raising those kids. And if you've got grandkids, they need your help, grandparents, because our kids are struggling. And even in a Christian home and even going to a Christian school, our kids struggle because they are enticed by the world. It's everywhere in front of them. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult world. And so this is another reason that people pull away. They get out of church. They get away from God. Maybe they grew up. Maybe they started out, but then they get enticed and pulled away. So, yeah, I think that's another reason why people pull away. Anybody else? Okay, yes. That's true. Hmm. Okay. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think those people are people, they want all the benefits of being a Christian. They want to avoid hell. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they want a good life insurance and fire insurance policy. Uh, they'd like to avoid hell. But when it comes down to changing your life, changing your friends, stop smoking, stop drinking, begin to live a holy life, begin to do things differently, not sleeping around, not running around. You know, all of a sudden, when God's ways, it begins to crowd them. And you're right. They say, huh? No. Uh -uh." I like Jesus when he lets me do what I want to do. And they, you really, they just see Jesus as a standby generator. You know, they just crank it up when the power's out and they're in an emergency and then they kick it off when everything's okay. And rest of the time, Jesus don't bother me. But Jesus wants to be full time our Lord. He wants to come into our life and change us. Let me just ask you a question. It, it kind of relates to this. I wrote it in your paper. Uh, but, you know, and I, I, it kind of relates to this a little bit. Why did Paul deliver Hymenaeus and, and Alexander to Satan? And what did that actually mean? I can already tell you what it means. I want you to tell me why did he do this? He kicked him out of the church. And, and, and we know that 
uh, basically look at Matthew 15, uh, 18, verse 15 through 17. Jesus is talking, kind of shows a little pattern here. If another believer sins against you, go privately, point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take two or uh, take one or two others with you. Go back again so that everything you, may be, you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. In other words, he's out. First uh, Corinthians five, verse three through five says, even though I'm not with you in person, this is Paul talking. I'm with you in the spirit as though I were there. I've already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, you must call a meeting of the church and I will be present with you in spirit. And, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you must throw this man out, hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved. On the day of the Lord's return, this is referring to the guy that was living with his father's wife. Uh, it was immorality, open immorality going on in the church. Paul heard about it, and he says, "Hey, man, I," and you know, he didn't mince any any words. He just said, "This is wrong. It's sinful. You, you can't." And he was obviously some sort of leadership position in the church, and nobody was willing to confront the problem. And he says, man, I've judged on this one already. This is a no-brainer. Kick this guy out so that he might feel the full consequences of his action because when you're under the church, there's an umbrella of protection. And so the idea is, you know, not trying to be mean or ugly or nasty or anything, but, you know, you're under that umbrella of protection of the church, and the guy wanted his cake and ice cream too. He wanted to live a sinful, immoral life, and he wanted the covering and blessing of the church. And Paul's saying, hey, you can't have both. He needs to be out there so Satan can get at him. And he can feel the consequence of his action. Then he'll repent. And if you read 2 Corinthians, Paul, the same guy that kicked him out, is pleading to the church that they would receive him back because he had repented. And they did receive him back. And he was restored in his faith. So the process works. But sometimes you've got to be willing. And the, I guess I've answered my own question. The reason he, quote, delivered them to Satan, and that phrase is just a phrase they use, so kick them out. And the idea is that when a person is trying to live under the covering of the church and enjoy the blessings of the church while living in open immorality, you've, you've got to take a step. Now, what Jesus described was, you know, don't just you know, up and do it, you know, go to them privately, try and work this thing out first, then take two or three with them, you know, explain, go, you know, do this thing, but do it in order. And then last case scenario, I guess you could, worst case scenario, you might have to bring this before the whole church, especially if the guy just, he or she hardens their heart. And it was to protect the church. But again, going back to the first thing I said at the first, the reason was is so that the gospel could be preached. And he saw that this person was hindering the gospel being preached. It was hindering the mission of the church. The gospel couldn't be preached. When this guy was doing this, it was bringing shame to the New Testament church there. So he said, you've got to deal with it. So again, everything they did focused on the gospel needs to be preached, and we don't want anything to hinder that. So the third question, and it just kind of relates this a little bit, but 
make sure we all are on the same page. What, what role does grace have in your life, in your salvation? What role does grace have in your salvation? Anybody want to throw a rock at that? What's that? 100%. We're saved by grace. I, I, I would agree with that. Yes, Ed? Okay. So not only is grace available to us, not because of our works, but because of his work, grace is available at salvation, but grace is also available when we're willing to confess our sin. Absolutely. Now, flip that around a little bit, just so we're aware, what role do we have in salvation? Grace saves us and provides and opens the door for us to be saved. What, what is our role? What do we have to do to be saved? Confess, repent, believe in our heart. What do we believe? We believe everything he says about Jesus. And what do we confess? Everything it says about Jesus. And what do we repent? We repent that we're a sinner. You know, and that's it. That's the heart of the gospel. To believe, to confess and repent, and we are saved. And the grace of God makes that available. Grace says you can't earn it, but you can have it. If you try to work for it, you can't have it. But if you'll admit you're a sinner and don't deserve it, you can have it. Okay, let's change a little bit. We're jumping uh, now to chapter 2, let's go to chapter 2 if we could. Uh, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. So the first admonition, and again, I, I will repeat myself, the reason he is telling them to pray for people is so that we might be saved. That's still their thinking. Uh that people would be saved, we've got to pray for them. And and he lists in New in the New King James, he lists different, you know, supplication, petitions, intercessions, giving of thanks. The New Living it, it simplifies it a little bit. But the bottom line is, is that we need to pray for others. We need to be willing to pray for others. Because the devil is real, the devil's trying to destroy people's lives, and we need to pray for people because the attack is real, folks. We are living in a warfare condition right now as Christians and getting more so every day. So why, uh, you know, why do we need to pray for each other? Very simple. People need to be saved. And they are not going to be saved. If you have an uncle, an aunt, and a brother, a sister, or a child, they need to be saved. They are not going to get saved until somebody prays for them. I don't believe anybody gets saved until somebody starts praying for them. 
To me, that releases the hounds of heaven and the Holy Spirit is after them and the Holy Spirit begins to grip their heart, begins to convict them of sin, begins to open their eyes, all the things that you're praying for them. And now that person, they could be running from God, but they're going to have to run harder because God is after them and God is after them. The Holy Spirit is after them because you are praying. And that is the motivation that he's saying here. Pray for them. Pray for everybody. And, and, and this kind of is more than the church. And the way he phrases it here, you know, pray for the whole church. Pray for everybody. Because there's so many that need to be saved. And he turns that just a little bit. Let's look at the next verse. No, not that one. Let's see. Let's back to First Timothy Two. Yeah, there, verse 2. Pray this way for kings. So again, how, how's that way? We need to pray that God would help them. We need to pray and intercede on their behalf, and we need to give thanks for them. So if we have kings and those who are in authority, we need to pray that way for them. Would you agree with that? Now, I looked up a little historical fact. I wanted to know who he was talking about in, in that time. Guess who the leader, the Roman leader was in that day? Nero. Well, if you've heard anything about Nero, remember about Rome burning while Nero fiddled? Well, the whole context was he was the worst persecutor of Christians there was. And the reason he burned his own city, the intent was that he would blame it on Christians. If you read the historical facts, that was his intent. He burned his own city so that Christians would be blamed for it. He hung them upside down. He fed them to the lions. They were persecuted and martyred in every way possible. By Nero. And so Paul was saying, pray for this guy that was a heathen that was terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Paul was the chief persecutor. You know, and, and he recognized... Paul did that he killed Christians himself because he persecuted. Why? Because his eyes were blinded to the truth. And he knew Nero and all those in authority and everybody needed to know the truth and come to the saving knowledge of truth. So what does he say? Pray for those in authority. You know, we would at... Our nation has to come back to the truth, at least the church. And I know the world doesn't see this, but the church has to get back to the truth that we support and pray for and encourage and do all we can for those who are in authority, even if we don't like them or don't agree with them. That's just the truth of it. You know... 
you go to work at a place and your boss is the meanest guy you've ever met and the first thing you want to do is change jobs? God may have put you in that job to teach you how to work underneath a boss that doesn't treat you well so that you will learn how to honor authority even when you disagree with that authority. I don't mean to step on your toes here. But it is a truth that every Christian has to get a hold of. Part of the level of maturity that all Christians have to come to is that we learn to honor authority even when we disagree. It's just the truth. And if we and, and what is what is the purpose for this? Look what he says. So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved. You see, if there is chaos, people are not going to get saved. Everybody's going to be running for their life. There is no one going to be able to be preaching the gospel if we're all in a wild chaos madhouse. He said, no, we need to pray for those who are in authority because, you see, those people in authority, they do give us an umbrella of peace as we pray for them. And that umbrella of peace allows us to be able to have peace in our homes, in our city, in our nation, so that not only we can live a peaceful life, but so that we can proclaim the gospel. Again, everything they did had that focus, that the gospel could be preached. And Paul saw it. He, he was reminding Timothy, Timothy, you need to pray for Nero. You need to pray for these guys in authority. You don't like them. You don't agree with them. They're persecuting you. But you need to pray for them because if you don't pray for them, then you're not going to have that umbrella of peace over your, over your land. And, and that is one thing that that the scariest to me about all the people who are rising up that want to refuse to honor and support the president-elect. It really has nothing to do with whether you like him or whether you agree with him or anything else. The truth of it is, he is our president. That's just the reality of it. Like it or not. And we're under mandate from God to pray for them, to support him, and to do all we can. And when you, when you oppose, it's like shooting the pilot of the plane you're on. <laughs> we're all in this together. <laughs> we're, we're in this plane, and we have elected a president, whether we like him or not, or whether we agree with him or not, he is going to be our president. And I'm just praying for our, I'm praying for our country to just somehow lay aside the petty differences and the disagreements. And it's like some people think it's a, a noble to oppose him. What good does it do to oppose him? It just makes no sense whatsoever to me. It's just like, you know, why would 
all the children in the family decide they're going to rise up and oppose their father. It's of no benefit to those children or the wife. (laughs) You know, we're under command of the Lord to first of all pray for them and, and beseech the throne of God, God, and not, and I know it may sound like we're praying for kind of a selfish purpose, you know, that we can leave a peaceful life and so that we can have a free uh, ability to preach the gospel. But also we're concerned about that person. We want that king to get saved. And I have no idea whether he's truly born again or not. But if he's not, I want him to be born again. I want God to touch his heart. If Hillary Clinton was the president-elect, I would be praying for her. I would want her to get saved. You know, it doesn't matter who. What I want is our nation to come together and at least Christians to see the admonition of the Scripture. And, you know, here we are. This is Wednesday night. The inauguration is going to be at Friday. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're facing a difficult time. And it's amazing to me how many Christians feel like their feelings and their emotions are more important than the Word of God. And I just would like to encourage you. There was a reason this Scripture is put in here. (laughs) There's a reason. And that is God knew we would be under leaders that would not be good leaders. He knew... There would, there would be times you would have to work under someone that was not a good leader, not a good boss. And if you talk bad, if you have a boss today, and he's a bad boss, and he's terrible in, in every way, if you talk badly about him and do not support him, I want to tell you, you're not helping yourself. You're not doing good for you Ultimately, you're hurting your company, you're hurting the business, and ultimately, you end up hurting yourself and your witness for the Lord Jesus. So part of the maturity in Christ that the Lord gives us, and that is learning the principle of supporting authority and praying for that person who's an authority, even when we don't like them, even when we don't agree with them. So I would like for us tonight if you don't mind we're we're at a critical junction in our nation um we're at a place where where we need desperately and i'm thinking if the church of jesus christ cannot obey the scripture in this simple area of supporting and praying for those in authority you know how can we expect the world to how can we expect the nation if we can't even do it as the church so I'd like to invite you, I'd like to encourage you to stand with me, and I'd like for us to pray for the inauguration, for our new president, and I'd like to pray for salvation. I don't know if he's saved again or not. I, I don't know. Uh, some say he is, some say he's not. I, I don't know, but i tell you what, I want him to be saved if he's not. Father, we just come to you in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, we obey your word tonight. Your word tells us, and it's so clear, Lord, that you commanded us to pray for all people everywhere, to lift them up, to pray for them. And, Lord, you also told us to pray for kings and those who are in authority. And we specifically pray for our president-elect, 
Donald Trump and Mike Pence and all the new legislators that have come in and, and the Supreme Court and the, the, the cabinet appointees and, and, Lord, all the way down to the state and local level. Lord, we pray for our leaders. And I pray, Lord, that their eyes would be open and would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, that they would come to a knowledge of who you are and they would know you and love you with all of their heart. And, Lord, I pray that our leaders, starting at the very top, going all the way down to the bottom, Lord, I pray that our leaders might be led by you and have wisdom from you, Lord, so that we could lead a peaceable life so that we could preach the gospel so that we could have the freedom and peace to preach the gospel. And, Lord, I thank you for giving us a heart to understand your principles of authority, to honoring those who are in positions of authority. And, and I know, Lord, sometimes it's not easy. But I ask you, Lord, to give us that heart to honor those who are in authority because, Lord, you said it's good for us. It's beneficial for us. And I ask you, Lord, that you would bless our nation, O oh God. Our nation seems so divided. And I just pray, Lord, that we would once again come together as a nation and support and love one another and support our leaders. Thank you, Lord. Help our nation, O oh God. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.